Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Society for Armenian Studies podcast. Today we have with us Professor Eileen Kochunyan, who is currently a lecturer at Bilgi University in Istanbul and teaches seminars on the sociology of law, the history of civilizations and of international relations. Today we will be speaking about her latest book, which was published by Peters Levin in May of 2018, entitled Negotiating the Ottoman Constitution from 1839 till 1876. So Eileen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, can you briefly tell us what the term negotiating is about in the title? So, who are these negotiators and what are they trying to negotiate? Yes, surely. Uh, well, uh, I entitled the book uh, Negotiating the Ottoman Constitution because uh, there are... Uh, There is a multi-layered negotiation within the elaboration process uh, of the Ottoman constitution. The negotiation is over concepts, how the concepts uh, are negotiated between uh, the draftsmen uh, who tried to write a constitution for the Ottoman Empire. I think the book uh, shows that uh, an internal lawmaking process goes beyond the national narrative because there is also uh, a negotiation with external actors uh, in the sense that uh, there is a world time and uh, people are aware uh, of the improvements uh, that occurred uh, in the external world in terms of uh, lawmaking processes. Uh, and also uh, the, ninth, the 1870s, uh, uh, we, can, we talk about the 1870s, so it's a period in which the world is well connected and it's a period in which the Ottoman uh, press also uh, is very much developed and talks about uh, the latest improvements uh, in terms of la- lawmaking processes at the world scale. So in that respect, uh, I think uh, inevitably uh, people are aware of uh, constitutional uh, developments in the external world and uh, they, um, they follow very well uh, all the processes and uh, they think about how uh, to conceptualize uh, a constitutional framework uh, for the Ottoman Empire by trying to adapt Um, these constitutional frameworks to the Ottoman reality. Uh, And also there is an internal negotiation uh, because uh, all the bureaucrats who were involved in this constitution-making process, uh, they had different origins, they had different uh, legal norms, uh, they come from different uh, religious backgrounds. Uh, so in that respect, uh, they don't have uh, the same conceptualization uh, of law. Uh, that's why they negotiate uh, over, uh, over the conceptualization and the elaboration uh, of, uh, of a constitution. So it's a multi-layered negotiation. Uh, and also uh, it's a negotiation uh, with the great powers, not because the great powers really supported the Ottoman constitution, uh, but starting from the 1839, um, I think uh, they addressed, they continuously addressed reform proposals uh, to the Ottoman Empire. And in that respect, um, 
they proposed improvements and uh, the Ottoman constitution comes as a response to these reform proposals uh, to save uh, Ottoman sovereignty. Well, the book is a very timely work since if we think of the parallels in nowadays, Turkey is going through the processes of constitutional changes with the constitutional referendum last year. So I just want to ask, uh, what is the national narrative, especially about the first Ottoman constitution? Since this is, a, this is an understudied topic as compared to the second Ottoman constitution. So in what ways this, this book is challenging that national narrative or, or in what ways it's changing that narrative? Well, I think the book uh, challenges also the westernization paradigm mm -hmm. in the sense that we think that uh, during the westernization process, which also included uh, the Tanzimat period, um, there is a wholesale adoption uh, of Western legal models. However, the process is uh, quite different. Uh, I think uh, there is a uh, threshold beyond which the great powers uh, could not uh, penetrate uh, the Ottoman state because it had a very strong uh, central administration. And this threshold is cultural. Uh, and we see uh, through uh, this process that uh, they are trying to adapt uh, the European constitutions uh, to the cultural uh, reality uh, of the empire. And we see that uh, the constitution making is also a problem, is also, has also a dimension of identity and they really want to uh, preserve their cultural authenticity. Uh, when writing the constitution. So I think uh, this challenges uh, this um, westernization paradigm. On the other hand, when we look at uh, the conventional historiography, uh, we see that uh, there is a continuous uh, development, not even from 1839, but uh, starting from the deed of agreement of uh, 1808, um, this national historiography describes uh, a, a continuous maturation uh, starting from uh, 1808 uh, until uh, 1876. Uh, however, when we look uh, at the draft constitutions, I think the most important novelty uh, of the book uh, is uh, a pile of draft constitutions that uh, I found uh, in the Ottoman archives. And um, when we look at uh, this uh, pile uh, of constitutions, draft constitutions, in fact, we see that uh, draftsmen did not see a continuity uh, from uh, 1808 until uh, 1876. In fact, they see uh, um, this uh, constitution making process as a break with earlier reforms. Uh, which became dead letters, uh, and also because these reform decrees were uh, charters granted by the Sultan. Uh, and some of the draftsmen uh, really wanted a break with um, these uh, decree reforms in the sense that they really wanted uh, to write a constitution uh, in the European sense. And also, I think we should not. Uh, trace, uh, we should not trace uh, this political maturation uh, in the final text uh, of the Ottoman constitution. I think 
the earlier drafts were more liberal texts, uh, and uh, especially the one that um, the drafting commission uh, drafted was uh, a text of 130 articles. Uh, it had really a liberal tendency before uh, the intervention of the Sultan and the cabinet. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we can challenge this uh, conventional historiography by uh, considering that the Ottoman constitution uh, and some of the draftsmen, they really wanted uh, to make a break with earlier uh, reform decrees. So the, usually the Tanzimat historiography shows this period or the historiography under Tanzimat shows this period to be as you said, like a culmination of this constitutional processes. And um, the draft constitutions you're looking at usually, you say, challenge or they challenge this, this narrative. My question is, are there any anti-constitutional movements in this period? Because if we look at the Ottoman constitution of 1876, we usually focus on the people who were for the constitution, Mithat Pasha being the most important. Uh, were there any anti-constitutional movements or bureaucrats? Uh, I think uh, there were uh, strong power uh, struggles between Mithat Pasha and uh, the traditional uh, political elites. Uh, I think um, the, the project of Mithat Pasha was already the foundation of a republic. I think he targeted the foundation of a republic uh, with this constitution. Uh, and the traditional elites thought that uh, their interests uh, would be challenged uh, by such a powerful uh, textual document. Uh, so I think we can talk uh, about an anti-constitutionalist uh, movement within traditional uh, circles. Uh, but I think uh, many members, uh, this, this uh, constitution-making process uh, included uh, various administrative units. Uh, so there was a constitution writing uh, committee, but in addition to this, uh, the Council of State was also involved in the process. And uh, it was really a unit, an administrative unit, which included uh, people from uh, various backgrounds, from various religious uh, affiliations. Uh, and um, I think um, this, uh, the outcome of this, uh, of this uh, drafting commission uh, is really a very major text um, and uh, a text which challenges this uh, traditional elites who are against the constitutional project. So when talking about elites, it's inevitable to think about the actors who are in this process. So we talked about the process of negotiating, how there were different layers. So maybe a few words on the actors themselves. Who were these actors? You talked about the foreign power. So what were their interests in kind of um, wanting a constitution, an Ottoman constitution? What was the role of the Christian millets or the Jewish millet in mm. that sense? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think uh, the actors are very uh, diverse uh, and uh, we, we can talk about, for instance, uh, about uh, the individual agency of uh, Henry Elliot, who was a British ambassador uh, to the port. Um, uh, 
I think there was a strong interaction between Mitat Fasha and uh, Sir Henry Elliot. Uh, and I think Henry Elliot was involved uh, and he was in favor uh, of the Ottoman constitutional project and he acted against the policy of his own government because Britain did not really support uh, the Ottoman constitutional period. And we can talk about a strong interaction between uh, Mitat Pasha and uh, uh, Henry Elliot. I looked at his private papers uh, in the public record office. Uh, I uh, read his uh, memoirs. Uh, so he, in a way, tries to explain us that um, if uh, the great powers were in favor uh, of this uh, constitutional project, Ab Abdul Hamid could not have uh, suspended uh, the constitution. Uh, I think um, in this period, uh, unlike the earlier periods uh, in which the European powers uh, supported the reform decrees, there is a change of policy uh, um, in European diplomacy uh, because now they want to shape differently the Balkans. Uh, so the autonomy uh, of the Balkans, of Bulgaria, of Bosnia and Herzegovina is uh, on their agenda. Uh, so uh, they are not in favor of this uh, constitutional uh, project. But there are some, uh, some members of uh, European uh, diplomacy uh, who supports, uh, who supports in a way, uh, um, the the modernist elites uh, of uh, of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, on the other hand, uh, people like Odian, who who were also involved in the uh, drafting process of their own uh, communal constitution, in a way they could transfer. Uh, they could transfer the um, the expertise, the earlier knowledge uh, to this uh, drafting process. In fact, um, I always encountered uh, in uh, secondary literature that um, um, that in a way Mitat Pasha hand in hand with uh, Odian Efendi wrote this constitution. Uh, but um, when I went to the archives and uh, found a pile of documents um, which are undated and which do not really uh, bear the seal of the drafting commission, uh, but uh, you can uh, you can in a way uh, constitute a kind of uh, con a kind of a calendar. Uh, you can date uh, this. Uh, uh, this, uh, these drafts uh, uh, in, in a parallel way uh, with the information you collect uh, from newspapers or from secondary literature. So you can reconstitute in a way uh, a kind of calendar to date, uh, to roughly date uh, this, uh, this pile of uh, draft constitutions. So you cannot really see uh, the signature of this or that pe person. Uh, I think if we could find such uh, signatures, uh, it, it would uh, help us uh, to trace how people of different uh, religious backgrounds uh, um, conceptualized a constitutional reform. But we don't have such signatures. We rather have, we can suppose that we rather have collective texts. Uh, but uh, again, if we come back to the draft, um, elaborated by the drafting commission which 
uh, housed in a way uh, people of different religious backgrounds, Greeks, Armenians, Ottomans, uh, and also people from different uh, professional backgrounds. So we have uh, all the um, influential uh, layers of the Ottoman society, the military, the ulema, uh, the, the bureaucracy, um, so Muslims and non-Muslims. Uh, I think uh, the outcome is really a, a very liberal text, which means that um, the earlier experiences uh, of these people uh, when, drafted they, when drafting their own uh, communal constitutions were in one way or another uh, transferred uh, to the writing process of uh, of uh, of the Ottoman constitution and also I think um, by initiating uh, uh, a new mode of governance uh, within um, their community uh, they also uh, initiated a kind of uh, new culture uh, about the treatment of uh, non-Muslims uh, and also perhaps uh, they initiated a discussion about uh, how this a discussion about legality, um, the di a kind of separation between what is administrative, what is religious. Uh, so they brought, I think, uh, some kind of secular uh, conceptualization of law. So I would say the 1860s is usually seen as a period of constitutions. You have the the special constitution. Of, um, for Mount Lebanon, and then you have the constitution in Tunis, as well as the millet constitutions, the, the Jewish, Armenian, and the Greek uh, Nizam Namis, or the millet constitutions. So what was the relationship between the millet constitutions and the Ottoman constitutions? Did the Christians, the Armenians, Greeks, see this constitution, the Ottoman constitution, as a challenge to the community? Did they try to preserve their privileges? So I'm trying to understand what was the relationship between a communal constitution and an empire-wide constitution. Uh, as I said, I think uh, this uh, communal constitutions, uh, they functioned as the first uh, laboratories, uh, I think, of uh, Western constitutionalism. Uh, and they, um, they could uh, bring clear-cut uh, clear-cut categories such as what is administrative, what is secular. Um, they try to find a kind of equilibrium between modernity and tradition. So it's a, it was a kind of exercise, I think. And also it brought a new vocabulary because previously uh, the communal regulations were called uh, in a way Ganona uh, Krutun in Armenian, for instance, uh, which is, I think, uh, a Greek word. Uh, by choosing the word Sahmanatrutyun, I think uh, Armenians reinvented uh, a traditional concept because it's an old word, after all, Sahmanatrutyun, which means also law but also limitations. Uh, it brought the idea that uh, law is something uh, that limits, uh, and uh, it had limits in the sense that it limits uh, the power of people. Uh, I think, um, in a way, uh, it, the, the word itself uh, shows that um, the bodies uh, who 
the bodies which are implicated in the governance, in communal governance, uh, they should be uh, redefined with their own limitations and limits. I think uh, the, uh, the relationship between limits and law, uh, I think this is important. I think uh, there was a very pacific relationship between communal um, regulations, communal constitutions, and the constitution of the Ottoman Empire, uh, in the sense that um, we see um, also in patriarchal minutes uh, of, uh, of the 1876 that um, Armenians considered themselves as uh, as one of the first uh, uh, communities that had a constitutional experience, and uh, they um, they expressed the they expressed the idea that uh, as they had uh, this constitutional experience in community governance, uh, they knew the value uh, of a constitutional framework, and I think. Uh, through the generalization uh, of a constitutional uh, framework in the whole empire, uh, they saw in a way the Ottoman constitution as a guarantee uh, of uh, as a guarantee for the protection uh, of their own uh, communal constitutions, uh, because uh, there is an article uh, in the Ottoman constitution that was uh, added, I think, uh, in the last minute, uh, which stipulates that. Um, Islam is uh, the religion of the state in a way, uh, but other religions, they are protected uh, together with their um, former privileges, which means that uh, the former uh, constitutional texts of the communities, they are also under protection. I think they see uh, the Ottoman constitution uh, as a way of guaranteeing um, the good uh, um, functioning uh, of uh, of their own national constitution. Speaking about limitations, I can't help but ask about the impact of the first Ottoman constitution, especially in the provinces. Uh, we know that the Armenian constitution, the Askaisan Atrochun, created a lot of problems in the provinces as well as solved some others. Uh, do you think the Ottoman constitution worked in a similar way in the sense that it provided a legal channel through which uh, provincial notables found their way all the way to, to the Ottoman parliament? So in a way it reproduced or perpetuated the power of the provincial notables. Uh, I think uh, even the vocabulary indicates, the vocabulary used in the Ottoman constitution indicates that these local uh, notables are reintegrated uh, in the constitutional will in the sense that we have a Mejlisi Ayan, so we have the term Ayan which means notable, uh, and also um, we have an electoral law uh, which was in, inspired in a way by uh, the Armenian uh, national constitution in the sense that people who pay a certain amount of tax can be electors uh, and can form an electoral college. Uh, in that respect, uh, I think that um, the constitution doesn't eliminate these uh, traditional elites. They reintegrate them, uh, and especially uh, in the Mejlisi Ayan, uh, which is the Senate. Um, but I think uh, when you look at uh, the exchanges, the speeches between Mithat Pasha and uh, 
Henry Elliot, the British ambassador to the port, you see that uh, Mitat Pasha has the project of making um, in the future, in the near future, the Senate an uh, in, in elective chamber, mm -hmm. like the Belgian uh, constitution. Of course, uh, he could not realize this project because he will be also uh, banished uh, in February 1877. Uh, but I think he had in mind uh, the elimination, uh, in a way, of this uh, of this notable by making the Senate. Um, a kind of uh, elected chamber like the, the Belgian uh, constitution. So if I understood it correctly, this is one of the paradoxes of the Ottoman constitution. In a way, the Tanzimat project was to destroy the local powers of the provincial notables, but through the Ottoman constitution, they reintegrated them in the, in the Ottoman system. And some of those notables actually used the power granted by the Ottoman constitution to perpetuate their local interest, local power? Uh, in a way, the Armenian national constitution itself could not really eliminate, I think, these local notables, uh, because uh, I think they had to benefit from their financial uh, means, financial capabilities, uh, to be able to realize uh, some new changes, uh, either uh, at the communal level or uh, in the general uh, empire, in the whole empire. Uh, but it's not only a paradox of the Ottoman constitution, in my view, because when you look at European constitutions themselves, you see that, uh, in a way, landowners, uh, they are in one way or another reintegrated uh, in the constitutional apparatus. It's not only uh, the paradox of the Ottoman world. I think um, most of the time, even uh, if you look at uh, the provisions, the articles of European constitutions, you see that uh, the landowners, they are not uh, entirely eliminated from the process. But of course, um, in Britain, for instance, landowners uh, are modernist. Uh, they are in favor of changes and improvements. So uh, perhaps uh, there are differences uh, in the way of uh, seeing the constitutional mechanism in Europe and uh, the Ottoman Empire. But it's not, only, it's not I think, an, an Ottoman paradox. Mm -hmm. But the conventional view of the Ottoman constitution, the first Ottoman constitution, is that Abdulhamid actually abrogated the constitution because... He, he, he suspended. He, he suspended because he saw it as a challenge, the Ottoman parliament. Do you think the the early, that's too early to actually make that case or make that judgment. Do you think in 1878 Abdulhamid was actually turning into an autocrat and he actually saw the Ottoman parliament as a challenge to his rule? Are there any other dynamics involved in this? Uh, I think international politics uh, are also one of these dynamics because we know that there is no constitution in Russia and uh, if we look at uh, the exchanges uh, of Ottoman uh, uh, ambassadors uh, to St. Petersburg uh, uh, in this period, uh, we see that uh, Ottoman bureaucrats um, in a way reflected the fear that Russia had uh, at the moment when uh, the Ottoman constitution was proclaimed. So uh, I think uh, Russia was... Uh, one of the major obstacles uh, in terms of the constitutionalization of the empire. Uh, 
Uh, as I said, the great powers, they, uh, they conceptualize another uh, international uh, arena. So uh, they, they want to shape differently, to differently shape uh, the Balkans. Uh, I think uh, we can talk about uh, international politics also, not only Abdul Hamid, uh, but also uh, the impact of international politics and the impact of the change of policy uh, in European diplomacy. So if uh, the great powers supported the Ottoman constitution as they supported the 1856 reform decree, uh, I think the fate of the Ottoman constitution would be totally different. Hmm. Maybe to end one with one final question. We know that the first Ottoman parliament or the constitution was very short-lived, but intellectually it had a big impact. Uh, so what do you think was the, was the legacy of this first constitution after its suspension in 1878? Did people always talk about it or maybe the revolutionary groups it was on their agenda so in, in maybe intellectually as well what was the legacy of the first constitution uh, in fact this book is a little bit mechanistic in the sense that uh, it uh, only uh, focuses on the bureaucratic process how bureaucrats uh, conceptualize the constitutional reform uh, but i think um, Well, um, in a way, uh, the press, uh, the debates that initiated uh, within the press, um, I think it left a kind of uh, legacy because after all, uh, in 19, in, in 19, well, when the second uh, Ottoman constitutional era started, they, uh, they accepted first the text as it was, uh, and then they amended the text. Um, well, I think um, there was an uh, there was a kind of uh, political uh, maturation, um, but as I said, the book uh, doesn't talk about the intellectual process. I think if we uh, really want to focus on this uh, intellectual process. Uh, it's not uh, only uh, through the Ottoman constitutional uh, text itself, but uh, we should uh, go back to, to the Ottoman press. Uh, we should go back uh, to, um, to, in a way, uh, law schools that were uh, opened um, after this period uh, and even a little bit before. Uh, so um, we should look at also uh, the reshaping of the uh, Nizamiye uh, courts. courts, yes, uh, and uh, uh, yes, the Nizamiye courts. Uh, I mean, the Ottoman constitution itself uh, will not be helpful uh, in grasping uh, the intellectual movement. And as I said, we should not concentrate on the final products. Uh, we should always take into account the drafts uh, and also how, um, how um, the process uh, was conceptualized in academic uh, circles. Of course, uh, the Ottomans will have 
the university in nine, 1900s. But before that, uh, there are some low, low schools uh, which will open. Uh, we will have some um, uh, Ottoman students. Uh, they will go uh, to study abroad. So we should look at if they, uh, for instance, uh, wrote a doctoral dissertation or not, how they refer uh, to this period. There are some, uh, I think, uh, thesis written uh, abroad. Uh, so we should also go back uh, to the academic productions to see how they refer to this uh, constitutional process. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you. Thank you very much.